0: It is now my distinct pleasure to introduce our keynote speaker, Tim Hafe. Uh, Tim is a double who. He graduated from the college in 1986 and from the law school in 1991. He is currently a partner at Hunton and Williams, and he is formerly the U.S. Attorney for the Western District of Virginia, meaning he served as the chief law enforcement officer responsible for prosecuting federal crime and defending the United States in civil litigation here in the Western District of Virginia. During his term as uh, United States Attorney, Tim served on the Attorney General's Advisory Committee, uh, advising the Attorney General on emerging policy issues, as well as the Chairman of the Attorney General's Subcommittee on Enforcement Coordination, Victims' Issues, and Community Outreach, which, if it sounds like anything, it sounds like intersectionality uh, on victims' rights. Uh, He was also a member of the Subcommittees on Criminal Practice, violent and organized crime, and civil rights. He has testified before congressional committees several times on issues ranging from guns to synthetic drugs to sentencing reform. Tim has a vast wealth of experience and expertise, uh, including investigations and prosecutions on a broad range of subjects, national security, financial and healthcare fraud, public corruption, international and national organized crime, environmental crime, money laundering, and civil rights. And I left out the things that weren't relevant uh, to today. Uh, Before serving as US attorney, Tim was a partner at an international law firm where he represented individuals and business entities in white collar criminal defense matters, and he also served for 12 years from 1994 to 2006 as assistant United States Attorney, first in the District of Columbia and then in the Western District of Virginia. Between college and law school, he served on the staff of then Senator Joseph Biden. Tim's experience and commitments reflect the kind of intersectionality that we are discussing here today. As a prosecutor, he was acutely aware of the intersection between social forces and legal ones and he thought about his role very much as going far beyond specific prosecutions for specific crimes. I was not at all surprised to hear him on the radio once, I was thrilled but not surprised, to hear him on the radio once talking about community basketball opportunities as fitting within his portfolio as uh, the U.S. Attorney. Outside of his day job, Tim has long embodied this intersectionality in his volunteer work, everything from the Virginia State Bar Criminal Law section to the Virginia Fair Trial Project, the Charlottesville Police Foundation, the First Amendment Monument of the Thomas Jefferson Center for Free Expression, the Charlottesville Admiral Commission on Children and Families, the Sorensen Institute for Political Leadership, and the University of Virginia President's Commission on Equity and Diversity. In other words, Tim represents the best of UVA law school, he is a public servant, a renaissance man, and I am honored to say a friend of both the law school and me. So please join me in welcoming Tim Hafey.
1: That was so nice. Usually I get introduced by somebody that's like reading my bio off the website, I now I get introduced by my neighbor and friend. Dean Goluboff. So thank you, Reese, and I know you have to go, it's okay. Um, So thank you for the invitation, I really appreciate it. I used to get a lot of invitations when I was the U.S. Attorney, and now nobody calls me anymore. So um, I'm lonely, so I appreciate this. It gives me a chance to meet all of you and talk about something that really matters to me, which is crime victims. I have spent my career, as you heard, in the criminal justice system, uh, working with a lot of victims of crime. Uh, and I want to talk a little bit about some of them today. Uh, years ago, I had an opportunity to teach at the law school. I was a, a lecturer, and I had to give that up when I was U.S. attorney, because you can't have a, a, an official affiliation with an outside agency that could be a, a witness, or a victim, or a target of a criminal investigation. Um, but I learned when I was teaching that students like hearing about real stuff, about practice, about cases, and my initial reaction of I don't want to be that guy that's always telling war stories, I got sort of over overrun over time by students' real zeal to hear about practice. So I'm going to talk a little bit about real situations and I think we'll get to intersectionality and some policy stuff through those stories. Um, So let me start by talking about what a victim is because I think it's important as a threshold to realize that victims are not just the people themselves who are assaulted or from whom things are stolen. Um, Victims of crime really often include all of us. Uh, Right before I moved to Charlottesville, I was an assistant U.S. attorney in D.C. This was in 2003. And at that time in Washington, there was a hysteria over a sniper. There There were people that were shooting randomly men and women who were pumping gas or cutting their front lawn and it kept popping up kind of around the area, and it was really scary. And I remember very specifically one evening uh, at a gas station, and I put the, the pump into my car's tank, and I remember looking around and thinking, this is strange, but I, I wanted to make sure I don't see a platform from which there could be a sniper. And it entered my mind at that relatively straightforward everyday moment. I was a victim of that crime, right, at that moment. I was thankfully not a a victim of the sniper, but it affected me, it affected everyone. And that happens all the time in our society. We're all victimized by crime in some way. We may not be, thankfully, the one who's assaulted, but there are ripples outward from crimes that affect us all, and I think it's important when we talk about this issue uh, to recognize that. There are the friends and family members of people who are victimized, who vicariously feel their pain. And there's a community outrage or a community concern that stems from victimization. Right? It happened right here in Charlottesville when we had uh, two young women, UVA students or college students, who were abducted and murdered. That made everybody feel unsafe. So victimization is something that, even if you're lucky enough not to be directly victimized, you're indirectly victimized. Um, thankfully... The criminal justice system provides an opportunity for victims to feel better, feel restored. And let me tell you a couple of stories about ways in which cases that I was fortunate enough to be involved in had positive outcomes for victims. The first one I want to tell you about is a woman named Tawana Bailey. I met Tawana in 1996 when I was a young prosecutor in the District of Columbia. And she was a resident of a public housing project who had been assaulted by the property manager. Tawana was very seriously addicted to crack cocaine, and she had had a long, reluctant relationship with this man named Cyrus Jackson, who was her property manager, where she was sexually involved with him in exchange for leniency on when she paid her rent, uh, on him not turning her in as a drug user, which meant if that was known to the housing authority, she'd be kicked out. She finally put her foot down and said no. She resisted Mr. Jackson, He then proceeded to beat her with a metal pipe and it broke both of her forearms. She was defending herself and he repeatedly uh, beat on her forearms and she she came into court with these two casts on her arms. She was hit in the head and uh, Mr. Jackson was arrested and the case was assigned to me. We tried the case. Mr. Jackson incredibly claimed self-defense. Not sure exactly uh, how reasonable that was. The jury didn't buy it and he was convicted. And I remember going back to tell Ms. Bailey, that that Mr. Jackson was convicted, and she couldn't believe it. She said, he was convicted? They believed me? I said, yeah, they believed you. She was really the only evidence that we had was her testimony. Uh, She told me that she was so afraid to come forward that she probably wouldn't have come forward if the police hadn't literally been called and interrupted the scene, that if if she had had to make a decision to come forward, she would not have done it because she was so scared, and she believed that no one would believe her that no one would take it seriously. She felt, through that process, uh, stronger, better about herself. Just the fact that the system took this crime seriously, right? A drug-addicted resident of public housing who was beaten up, she kind of expected that that kind of treatment. And the fact that Metropolitan Police Detectives and an assistant U.S. attorney and ultimately a jury found him guilty and held him responsible and sent him to prison gave her a sense that she was restored and I remember that very early in my career as a prosecutor feeling really satisfying that we were able to help a woman like Ms. Bailey feel restored. So the system has the opportunity not to make the, the victimization go away, but at least to respond in a way that makes them feel like they're believed and that it's, they're worthy, their rights are worthy of, of protection. Uh, the next story I want to tell you about is a woman named Shirley Atkins, and I see Annette Cox, who works at the U.S. Attorney's Office, Um, she was there for this trial. This was a more recent case in which Shirley Atkins' son was a man named Janelle Green, and Janelle was a drug user who stole a package of crack from a drug dealer who subsequently shot and killed him. And the case was cold, it was was a state case, and they couldn't uh, find out exactly who did it. The girlfriend of the man we thought did it had lied in the grand jury giving him a false alibi. When I became a U.S. attorney, we sort of took on this then-cold case, got the girlfriend to admit that she had lied in the grand jury and brought a federal criminal charge against the man who had killed Janelle Green and tried the case in federal court. Uh, and during the trial was the same week that the George Hughley matter, the UVA lacrosse case, was just up for preliminary hearing. CNN, ABC, national news up the street for the Hughley preliminary hearing. My case, where the victim was an African American drug addicted thief who was killed by a drug dealer, the, the courtroom was empty, except for Shirley Atkins, the mother of the victim. So the disparity between the level of interest in those cases that played out throughout my career. Right, the, the criminal justice system is one in which the relative value we place on certain human lives over others really dramatically plays out. And I don't mean to put disparage in any way, the the Hughley matter, that was a terrible tragedy and worthy of attention. But that kind of thing happens in our system all the time and nobody pays attention if the victim is not beautiful or privileged or rich or has status. So the disparity in that case was really striking. But after the conviction, Annette was probably with me, I went back into the witness room to tell Ms. Atkins and the family that she had gathered that Uh, that Antoine Jackson, the defendant, had been convicted. And this was a mandatory life sentence. And based on what we had charged, he was going to go to prison for life, no chance of parole. He'd be held accountable. And Ms. Atkins was crying. And I said, I'm sorry, Ms. Atkins. I know that that this doesn't bring your son back, uh, that this is still a sad day. She said, no, no, I'm not crying because of that. She said, I'm crying because you people cared enough about my son to do this, to bring this case. And she hugged me because we cared. I said, I'm just just doing my job, right? This is what we do. But the detectives and Annette and the lawyers, she felt like the system cared enough about her son who who society had not cared always about. Uh, And that again touched me. The system protects everyone, whether you're a drug seller or a drug addict or a privileged UVA student. When you're violated, The system is there to protect you. And when victims see that, it's a manifestation of the equality that that our system stands for. That's the system at its best. Pursuing these cases gives people a sense that the system cares and it credits their suffering, credits their pain. Now, on the other side, there are times when victims leave an encounter with the system unsatisfied. And I've had several of those encounters as well. Back in D.C. when I was soon after the Tawana Bailey case, I had another robbery case assigned to me in which the victim was an older man who had glasses and was walking home from the subway uh, and he was knocked to the ground and he was wearing a fanny pack. This was in the 90s, okay, fanny packs. I'm not sure they're ever cool, but they were at least, this guy uh, was sporting a fanny pack and the robber went into the fanny pack, removed his wallet and money and fled short time later, someone who sort of matched the general description was stopped. He had, I think there was some change in the fanny pack. He had change in his pocket. He was brought to the scene of the crime where the victim was was still there, and he was identified. That's called a show-up identification, and it's legal because there was general consistency with whom he described as the robber and the person who was stopped. So there was a case brought to me against this man who had been identified by the victim in the show-up. So as I'm preparing to try this case, the defense lawyer comes to me uh, with two pictures, two booking pictures. One of his client and another of another guy who looked a lot like his client, who turns out had a record for strong-arm robbery, who lived a few blocks away from where this occurred, who was out at the time of this offense. And he said, my guy swears it wasn't him. He's heard chatter in the neighborhood that it was George, and George was the other guy in the picture. I said... Thank you for bringing that to my attention now before trial as opposed to springing that mid-trial. If that's accurate, we'll get to the bottom of it. Let me let me talk to my guy, my victim. So we brought in the victim, and we did a show-up, excuse me, a lineup identification where we put the photographs together, and he went back and forth between George and the defendant, and he wasn't sure. So I said to him, sir, we have to dismiss this case. We can't go forward. Um, I can't be sure that you've identified the right person he said what do you mean I didn't identify the right person I saw him his police officers brought him to me and and that was him I'm sure of it I said I understand that you're sure of it but it was quick and your glasses were knocked off and and I can't be absolutely sure that I can prove this beyond a reasonable doubt and to be honest I'm not sure that you've identified the right person so I have to dismiss this case and he was furious so angry that we me had second-guessed him And the the reason I tell that story is that victims are not our clients. As prosecutors or police, the the system doesn't represent victims. The system represents, the prosecutors represent the cause of justice and have an obligation to do what is fair and what's right. And if there's ever any uncertainty about whether you have the right person or you can't prove something beyond a reasonable doubt, I'm an ethical obligation to let that go. I could have been wrong and he could have been right, but we couldn't be sure, and that meant we can't go forward with that case. And even though the victim was angry, that was consistent with the higher obligation that prosecutors have to do justice. And this is a tricky relationship because you can't help as a person when you work with crime victims to feel like their lawyer, to feel like the one that wants to do for them what we did for Tawana Bailey and make them feel like we credit them and understand their pain and are there to help them get justice. And that's that's powerful, but it can be dangerous because it can cloud your, obje- your objectivity and your judgment. I'm looking at Ron Huber who runs the U.S. Attorney's Office here and he's been in that situation again and again where you, you want to be empathetic and you want to infuse your presentation with the, with the outrage that the victim feels but it can't cloud your, ob- your objectivity and your dispassionate judgment about what's right and that's a hard tension that that prosecutors and officers always have uh, always have to uh, Monitor. My rule generally was consult, solicit the victim's view, but that the decisions about a plea, about a particular sentence, about whether to go forward with the case, that was our decision. That the victim couldn't control that. They had a right to consultation, but not a right to actually make that decision. The second unsatisfied victim I want to tell you about just happened last week right here locally in a case in which I represented a witness. The woman's name was Sarah Bailey. She's testified in a public trial. And she was the victim of a sexual assault by another student, two UVA students. And this case was just tried last week in Charlottesville Circuit Court. And she had had a previous relationship with this man who'd later assaulted her. But then on the second occasion, he was extremely intoxicated, kind of came on to her too strongly, and ultimately took her into a back room at a party and forced her to give him oral sex. That was her testimony. And she described, when she testified, the feeling of sort of being somewhat disassociated from what was going on, of being in numb, uh, stunned compliance, where she wasn't, the defense lawyer was, well, you could have kicked him, you could have bitten him, you had control in that situation. And she said, it's hard to describe, but I really was just, so it was almost like I was watching what was going on from outside of, of my body. I was just really stunned, and I, I reached a point where I knew I couldn't get out of this, and I just complied. And that's common. That happens so much in sexual assault cases, where victims reach a point where they don't actively resist. And that's a little counterintuitive. And the defense lawyer exploited her lack of resistance again and again. And the case hung. The jury could not reach a verdict. That's so why it's still a pending case. Thankfully, I don't represent the defendant. I represented a, another student who happened to witness the aftermath. But Sarah needed help in the form of an expert in that case. In my view, Sarah's reaction, common to sexual assault victims needed to be translated by an expert so there are times when the system has to help explain why victims act in the way that they do and when that case is retried my hope is that the prosecutor calls an expert who works with the victims of domestic violence and describes this sort of disassociation or stunned compliance that occurs frequently in these cases without that her actions were scrutinized were questioned and created a reasonable doubt of the defendant's guilt, at least in the mind of some jurors. I don't think the system treated Sarah as well as it should because it did not provide that information to help the jury understand what she said. And she left horribly upset. She was challenged. Her credibility was challenged. The defense theory was essentially she was embarrassed because she got caught doing this voluntarily at a party. Um, Fairly aggressive challenge from the defense uh, that I think backfired in the minds of some jurors. But it would have been a lot harder to make that argument in the face of an expert's testimony. We'll see what happens when that case is retried. Now, whether the system provides a positive outcome or a negative outcome for the victim, regardless, there's tensions that I want to highlight for you before I stop. A couple of things that in this process of trying to give victims a sense of uh, completion and satisfaction, Um, that that arise that everybody in the system has to be mindful of. I was fortunate to be a part of the committee that President Sullivan formed in the wake of the Rolling Stone article to re-examine the university's sexual misconduct protocols. What's the adjudicative process that will be implemented when a student comes forward with an allegation? What services for victims will be made available? When do those allegations have to be reported to law enforcement and go into the criminal justice system? Those are hard questions that we wrestled with. And the goal, our charge, was let's get this right. Let's examine what schools do around the country and let's come up with the best practice gold standard for how this very difficult issue should be handled on college campuses. And it quickly became apparent that it's really hard to simultaneously create a victim-centric process and provide due process to the accused. Right? The goal of the process is to make victims feel comfortable coming forward. Give them control over whether it goes to law enforcement, whether it's a formal charge or an informal. There, there are lots of options that the men and women who make these allegations have when they come forward. And, and you want to give them as much power as possible. Um, you also, in the process, we decided not to force a confrontation. Right, this, There's sort of these mini-trials, these adjudicative hearings. The victim tells his or her story, and then, separately, the accused has an opportunity to tell his, generally his story. There is no confrontation, and that, again, is an a attempt to make victims feel empowered to come forward and not afraid of being re-victimized by the process. As you can see, that is hard if you're accused, okay? if, if you're accused of, of an unwanted sexual advance at a party or sexual encounter that you say was consensual. You, you want a fair process by which you can have uh, objective, neutral fact finder evaluate the evidence and, and make a finding that's fair, that is, d- that is based on due process. And without confrontation, that's difficult to do. The due process protections we put in place are advisors, right? Uh, there are lawyers or other students that can get involved for the accused or for the victim or for witnesses. There's also several levels of appeal. There's an initial finding, and then there's a more experienced group of administrators to whom something is appealed. So there's some semblance of due process, but it's difficult. So how do you create a system that simultaneously gives victims ultimate power and fairness to the accused? That is just inherently difficult. You can't do both completely. And schools around the country, despite the best efforts to get this right, continue to struggle with that. The other issue that has attention is victim impact testimony and its uh, impact on jurors. Another victim that I was fortunate enough to get to know during my time as a prosecutor was a man named John O'Connell. And John O'Connell was a former New York City homicide detective who sent his son, Keith O'Connell, to James Madison for college. And Keith developed a relationship with a woman named Ann Olson. And Ann had an old boyfriend who was very jealous. And Brent Simmons, her old boyfriend, would repeatedly call Anne and harass and ultimately stalk Anne after their relationship ended. And this was when she and Keith became involved. And one night, Brent Simmons drove from Florida to Harrisonburg and shot and killed both of them. Killed Keith O'Connell, we think first, because he was laying on his back with a gunshot wound to the head on the porch of a, an apartment. And Ann Olsen was found inside the apartment crouched over into the sort of arm of a couch shot in the back of the head. So it looked like Keith was killed first and Ann was killed second. Both shot point blank in the head. This was a death penalty case that I tried in federal court uh, down in Abingdon, Virginia. During the trial, Keith uh, Brent Simmons was, was convicted of the crime, and we moved on to the sentencing phase. And in the sentencing phase of a capital case, victim impact testimony is admissible. Payne versus United States, Supreme Court held. That is a valid consideration for jurors in death cases to consider. John O'Connell was our first witness in the sentencing phase. Gravelly voice, tall, gray hair, you know, used to testify because he'd been a homicide detective himself. And he told about a 10-minute narrative about Keith's acts repeatedly of generosity. Keith was the kind of guy that would always give his friends a ride. Keith was the kind of guy that, if his little sister missed a free throw in the basketball game, would go sit next to her and tell her it was going to be okay. Keith was the guy that would help his friends move, and he'd get credit card bills in New York for U-Haul rental. And he'd say, what happened? And Keith said, well, you know, my friend needed to move from one apartment to the other, so I got a truck and I helped him move. And he said Keith ultimately died as he lived. He died standing up for, trying to protect Ann Olsen. I was crying like a baby standing there at the podium as he was telling these stories. It was all I could do to, to, to ask him to formulate a question. It was incredibly powerful. No, there was not a sound in the courtroom. Everybody was just you know, just completely punched in the gut by the, the gravity of this tragedy and the eloquence of John O'Connell talking about his son Keith. And I sat down, and I'm like, man, how, how can this not be a death verdict, right? That was so powerful. Part of me, though, felt that's um, is that fair that the, the powerful victim testimony uh, could inflame this jury to the point where they could, based on that, largely that, you know, sentence a man to death. So there's a tension there, right? The trials are about dispassion and are about deciding guilt or innocence and even punishment based on evidence based on objective factors. And emotion isn't objective. Emotion it really can, can move people in ways that aren't, aren't rational. And there's a role for that in the system, but it's also dangerous. And there needs to be a way to accommodate victim impact testimony and have it be considered, but not have it create sort of runaway emotion-based verdicts. It's, ha- it's just hard. There's, just, there's no answer to that other than be mindful of it. The jury actually hung 11 to 1 for death. So Brent Simmons got multiple life sentences. So I want to conclude with two stories of, uh, of hope. I, I, it's hard to follow some of these stories, um, particularly on a beautiful day when everybody's in a good mood without giving you something more you know, uplifting. And I happen to have some uplifting stories. Um, the first I wanna tell you about is Carol Watkins. Uh, when I was in Washington, I had a trial in which we charged uh, a group of men with 31 separate uh, homicides. This was a gang case that took over a year to try. It was a RICO case, another death penalty case. And our star witness in that trial was a man named Oscar Veal, who had, commi- who had committed seven contract murders for this gang. He was essentially a, a hitman who was paid to kill. And one of the men that Oscar killed was Anthony Watkins. Anthony Watkins was a drug seller who was selling heroin in an area where someone else had essentially uh, felt competition. And that someone else hired Kevin Gray, our lead defendant, to kill Anthony Watkins. Kevin subcontracted it to Oscar, and Oscar committed the murder. Oscar cooperated. He testified for nine days. He was on the witness stand. Uh, the defendants were convicted, not just of those seven murders, but of 29 of the 31. They were all ultimately sentenced to life in prison. But then came Oscar's sentencing. Oscar himself, who had cooperated, was uh, was to be sentenced on this particular day in, in federal court in Washington. And victim impact testimony uh, came. Even though it was a, he pled guilty and he was a cooperator, victims of his seven murders had a right to provide the court with information about what they thought was a just sentence for, uh, for Oscar Veal. Carol Watkins came up to the podium. She was Anthony Watkins' mother. And she had also, much like Shirley Atkins, been sitting in the courtroom for much of the trial. And she said, Oscar, I want you to look at me. And she addressed him directly. And he turned and he looked at her. And she said, I want you to know that I love you, that I forgive you for what you did that I'm a Christian and that I believe, I hope that you, when you someday meet your maker, that he will forgive you as well. Uh, I love you and I forgive you. And I'm getting chills just telling the story because it was such a poignant moment in the courtroom of grace and forgiveness of this woman whose son was killed addressing the killer of her son and saying, I love you. Tragedy tests character and it brings out values. And Carol Watkins' ability to forgive and to, and to tap into that grace inside of her, it blew me away. That strength and that perspective was brought to the surface by that victimization. So her strength, you know, I remember it all the time. I tell that story whenever I can because I love it because it's so, man, it's so powerful to me. The other story that I want to end with that it, it gives me hope is, uh, involves Virginia Tech, one of the things that I got to do as US Attorney was go around the district when there were uh, anniversaries or events or things uh, where law enforcement was somehow involved. And on the third anniversary of the mass shooting at Virginia Tech, it was April 16th of 2010, I was invited to go to Virginia Tech uh, to participate in this run in remembrance of the, of the uh, shooting. There were 3.2 miles because there were 32 victims of that mass shooting in 2007, and when I got to the race, I was with all the ATF agents because the ATF guys had been the first responders and had actually gone into the classroom buildings where uh, all the bodies were located, and this was very emotional and very personal for them. Anyway, when we got there, we were each, everybody, there were like 3,000 people on this long road that leads to what they call the drill field at Virginia Tech, and every one of us was given a balloon, was given a, a red, like a maroon balloon or an orange balloon. And we carried these balloons to this, this uh, street where the, the couple thousand runners were waiting for the race to start. And we were standing there, it was a beautiful sunny day, and it was really quiet. And I looked up and I saw 32 white balloons rise over the crowd, right, one for each of the, of the victims. And then as I'm watching these balloons rise uh, into the blue sky, everybody started releasing their balloons. The orange and the maroon were, were rising behind the 32. And I thought, what a, what a beautiful image of a community coming together after a tragedy. Right? That affected, going back to the very beginning, of how we're all victims. Everybody connected to Virginia Tech was victimized by that. But they came together and they found ways like this day to lean on each other in the face of that victimization, to help each other cope. It, it brought the community in a weird way coming together and those balloons rising together and behind the 32. But to me, that was like a perfectly beautiful symbol of that. Right? Communities come together and coalesce sometimes in the face of tragedy. So victimization is awful, we'll never get away from it. The system will continually try hard to, uh, to react to it in a way that's thoughtful and sensitive and positive and helps the people who are victimized. Um, but it's an opportunity for character, for love, for grace, for coming together. That's why I'm drawn to this work and that's why I would encourage any of you who are thinking about using your law degree to do something that impacts the world, criminal justice system is a great place to do that. Right? Stories like this, you'll have yourself if you, if you choose this system. You can help crime victims. You can wrestle with these tensions. So I hope some of you uh, listen to what I said today and are maybe motivated to, to pursue some of this yourself. So thank you very much for having me. I really, really appreciate the chance to talk about something this important.